Welcome to the Podglomerate. Hello and welcome to Plus 7 Intelligence, the show about how games impact people. My name is Chess. This episode continues our series talking about games and education. Games in classrooms, how to design educational games, and how games teach us in unexpected ways. If you are interested in discussing how games have impacted your education or other aspects of your life, be sure to check out the Plus 7 Intelligence Discord server. If you're not sure what that is, an easy way to describe it is it's a community hangout chat channel. You can find it at discord.gg slash plus seven. And be sure to share this episode on social media. I am putting out some clips of the show on Twitter and Facebook that are perfect ways to introduce the show to people who have never heard of it before. And if there's a part of an episode that really resonates with you, I'm always curious what we talk about on the show that really sticks with listeners. Let me know in the Discord or on Twitter, and I'll see if I can cut a clip of that moment so that you can share your favorite parts of the show with friends and fellow gamers. Today's episode is with Professor Scott Nicholson. This one took months to put together. The first time that we had scheduled to talk, both Scott and I were sick at the same time, and it took six months to finally sit down and chat. And I'm here to tell you, it was definitely worth the wait. He leads a game design program that is one of a kind. The Brantford Games Network Lab is all about training students to make transformative games. The tagline of his lab is, we make games to change the world. Scott is one of the few people who can teach us how to make games that teach effectively and make the world a better place. In our discussion, we talk about how that program works, and we also talk quite a bit about escape rooms. That's an area that he has particularly been studying and pioneering as of late. This conversation was jam-packed full of insights, so much so that I actually had to split it into two episodes. We talk about everything from LARPing to education reform, grading structures, board games, escape rooms, video games, ethics and game design, and so on. So don't forget to subscribe so that you can see where this conversation goes. For now, let's get started with part one of my interview with Scott Nicholson. All right, talking with me today is Scott Nicholson. He is the director of the Game Design and Development Program at Wilfrid Laurier University, and he is the director of the Brantford Games Network Lab. Thanks for coming on the show, Scott. Hey, thanks for having me. This series is on games and education in particular, and you're in an interesting position that you are teaching game design, and your game design program revolves around games that are impacting the world. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So the program that we have there in Brantford started about four years ago. I was recruited up from Syracuse University to lead the design of this program, and Our slogan is that we make games to change the world, and the idea is that throughout the four years, while the students are studying with us, the games they're working on in their classes are games with real-world outcomes. Every game they're making, they're starting with an organization, they're starting with a learning outcome, an audience, and they are making a game to meet that learning outcome for that audience. 
And it's it can be a challenge for students who come in and believe they want to do uh, big AAA recreational video games that we step them back and say, no, no, we're first going to think about what's the change we want to make with the game, and then we're going to make the game to create that change. I started the program, I, I, I was a former librarian, and so I worked with making games in libraries, and at Syracuse University, that was one of my areas of specialty, was, was games for libraries. I then went off to MIT for a year at the uh, at MIT Media Lab, and there I worked with games in schools and games in museums, and started to get involved with corporate training and nonprofit training. And I knew I wanted to come back and be in an academic program where I could have that focus of games. Yeah, that's really awesome. This is the first program that I'm aware of that is not just teaching game design, but teaching game design with a purpose like that. You know, not just the game design fundamentals in and of themselves, but teaching how to create games that have that external impact. How, I guess it's kind of a big question, but, you know, how did you go about setting up this kind of a program and what was the reaction to having a program that, you know, has such a bold claim that these games are going to change the world. Well, the, the, the campus that I'm at is a branch campus here in Brantford, Ontario. The main campus is up in Waterloo. And this branch campus, one of the things that's at the heart of this campus is social justice. Many of the programs have a social justice focus, whether they be criminology or social justice or public health or things like that. So this university was looking for a game design program that would fit alongside these other programs. And so from the beginning, the students, they're taking some courses that are helping to build their social justice awareness and that game design program to have that social justice backbone. Uh, it was welcomed here at the university because it fit in quite nicely and allows us to work with our other programs. I find that when I talk with parents about the degree program and explain what we're doing, the parents, most of them sigh a sigh of relief <laughs> because <laughs> they realize that the games that their, their kids are going to be making have the potential to have an audience out there that's very different than what they probably thought uh, the game design program was going to be. So I find it's actually it's an easy program to justify to funders and to parents when I speak to anyone and they say, oh, I teach game design. Oh, game design. I bet you run around killing people all day. It's like, well, no, no, actually, uh, <laughs> that's kind of not the plan. And I explain what we're doing. And it raises eyebrows. Uh, it does a couple other things as well. It makes uh, the first year of the program is focused on analog games and some live action games and role playing games. And so we, we start in that world because when you make a game with a real world outcome, sometimes the platform is not a video game. Sometimes you want that 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 physical platform because you want the face-to-face -face engagement or that you need something that it's going to cost very little to deploy. So you want to make something that's a print and play game, uh, something that doesn't necessarily rely upon uh, technology. So the first year we get to focus on that. The, th the people I have to convince the most about it are our students and that Early on in the first year, about four years ago, when I came in to do this, many of the students came in expecting this to be like every other game design program in Ontario, focusing on AAA games. And I had to help them understand, well, you're still going to learn how to make engaging games. In fact, what we do in this program is really focus on elements of user experience design and psychology and motivation. These are all going to be things that are useful for you no matter where you end up. But we have this addition in here of helping you to be prepared for a very different career path than you might have been thinking. 
Um, every other game design program here in Ontario are focused on getting students into those big video game companies. And we're trying to provide an alternative to say, hey, there's a lot of other places that need games and that are hiring people to create those games. Now, they may call them simulations. They may call them experiential learning. Uh, in a museum space, they may call them exhibits. But the idea at the heart, it's this playful interaction. And, and so with the students... Now we're at a point where we're, our marketing is stronger and our students who are coming in are coming to us because they want that, because they have looked at the other programs and they say, no, I want something different. I want something with, with this focus on, on things that are going on in the real world. Yeah, that's amazing. So the program is a game design program and you say that you start with analog games. Does the program also cover digital games and the software side of that? Or is it more focused on the fundamentals of uh, game design as, as a practice? Well, the primary skill the students are using during this degree is writing. Uh, when you make games, it's like a three-legged stool. You need uh, your programmers, you need your artists, and then you need your writers. And, and the writers are, are doing that initial design. And so that's our focus. And we tell students coming in, you will do – so the students do four programming classes. So they learn Game Maker. They learn some Unity. But really what they're learning how to do in those classes is how to create a prototype for their ideas and, more importantly, how to talk with programmers. They're not going to end up being a programmer with only four programming classes over four years. They do a little bit of art, a little 2D, 3D design, a little of that kind of stuff. And again, they're not going to be able to go out and get a job as an artist, but they will learn how to talk with artists and how to bring in uh, bring in some assets and use them in their games. So year one is focused in the analog world and focused on creating design documents and, and theories like flow and those sorts of things. Um, year two, they then move into doing some game maker work and understanding these basics of how to make a PC game. In year three, they're then moving into doing some Unity work and some work on creating mobile games. Then year four, they do a capstone project as a large team. We invite a real-world client to come in, and the students work together. Oh, and, and half of their coursework in their final year is in a in-house studio. There, they make a game with a real client uh, and do that. So they, by the time they're done, they've had some experience with different team roles. They've had some experience with with some programming and, and some art. Uh, but more the the thing we focus on the most is the design side, as well as management. So the students take classes in project management, in public speaking, in ethics, in user experience design, uh, because we see our students as being the ones who can go to an organization to say, all right, who's your audience and what are you trying to do with them? And to come up with those initial pitches and those ideas to create the initial story and narrative to write out the game mechanisms and the concepts and then go back to the organization with a design document and say, all right, now we'll hire some programmers and artists. And we and that the the designer then takes on a bit more of a, a project lead at that point and tries to keep everything going. So if they choose, they can be certified as a project manager when they finish this degree because we know that's an important skill out there that most game programs aren't training people. So that's the that's the path that our students are taking through this program. Wow, that sounds so amazing. I mean, when I was going to school, I you know I had a choice. I was thinking about game design you know, going into computer science specifically for game design or going to a game design program. But my problem was, is like, well, I don't want to learn all the programming and then kind of be stuck with that one skill. But the way that you're describing it, you are kind of giving these uh, students tools from all different areas to understand top down along the line, all the different kinds of skills that are needed. Like you said, how to communicate with programmers, how to make the pitch, 
Um, I think that's really incredible. I feel like that's that's such a smart way to handle it. It's a surprisingly mature way to handle an industry that doesn't really have that impression of being a mature industry like game design. Part of it is getting the students ready for what they're going to need to do. There's industries out there that need them. They need these game designers, but they may not know that they need them. Corporate training is a great example, um, or, or nonprofit training, any sort of training out there. Uh, there's some pretty awful training. <laughs> <laughs> and so with our students, if they understand how to speak to an organization in the terms the organization can hear, whether that's a term like simulation or whether it's experiential learning or, or whatever the terms are, and helping them understand, yeah, you know, I can work with your subject matter experts, I can work with your trainers, we can run game jams to help create these to help create these games to address these outcomes. Whether it be for an organization that has an internal audience, like for training, or in a marketing arm of an organization, they're looking to reach out to people and do activations. And that's the sort of stuff we've been working with organizations like Red Bull, and we've created uh, games for a, a one of the Prime Video series, You Are Wanted. We did the event for in Berlin. We did a series of escape rooms, the media event for the release of their second season. So our students are getting paid to do these design jobs and they're working with real world clients to understand different places that these games could be used. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> I know I'm doing a show here, but now I'm going back and rethinking my own educational path. <laughs> <laughs> well, part of this came out of one, the university giving me the freedom to turn this into what I saw as a need out there. And then two, being that I had had experience as these kind of in this designer role, I knew what was missing and trying to create students then who will be able to fill these, these, these gaps that are out there. Um, my vision is that some of these students will decide to stay here in Brentford and set up small consulting groups, which will then create opportunities for our current students to get nice internships, which can then lead into growth in the industry. And my hope is that Brentford become the home in Canada where people come when they need some kind of a game for their organization. You talked about how you were a librarian and saw games used that way. Is that where you first kind of encountered the original idea that games could be transformative and, and that they had this potential to to affect a positive change on people? Well, I've been a gamer all of my life. I, I grew up with an Atari 2600. I grew up you know, with my TRS-80 color computer Model 1 with chiclet keyboard and playing red box and blue box Dungeons and Dragons and uh, playing uh, Talisman and other Games Workshop games. And so games have always been an important part of my life. Um, I did live-action role-playing through college, so I would dress up in funny outfits and run around in the woods hitting people with padded weapons. Uh, but more importantly, building up my social skills while doing that, I took on more of a role of a designer and began to design experiences for live-action where I got to see how people interact directly with each other and the sort of things that go on. So during that, all of those years, I was building up my, my awareness of games as motivational tools, even though I was not applying them directly in the workforce. My undergrad was math and computer science. I actually went on and worked as a programmer for a while, but then I got tired of my hobby being my job. Yeah, we'll put a little check mark in that for later. Um, <laughs> and uh, then I went to become a librarian. And it was really as I got into the library field and I saw people working with information, and I started to understand 
the importance of conveying information, conveying relevant information to people, that's where I began to have the aha and the connections in my head between what information scientists were doing in conveying relevant information to people and what game designers were doing in conveying relevant information to people. Because a game design, if you think about what it, a, a, an important part of making a game is conveying information to your players and conveying information that they need at the time when they need it and not bombarding them with information that is not relevant. That's how you're going to frustrate them. So I've started to look at and think about as I was doing my, did my uh, master's in library science and my PhD in information science and understanding the how information is conveyed in society, I was looking at it with a frame of using games as our information conveyance device. And it's that connection, that background aha, that helped me to then look across all spectrums of using games to convey information. So at the heart of everything I do, down deep, there is this hardwired uh, theoretical and conceptual framework of information science, which is a different approach than most people have in the games world. And I look, and that's why we're looking at the ways games impact people in the same way librarians understand the way that information impacts people. It's really the same thing. It's just interactive information, and that's the way I see games. The power of games to, to convey information is something that I found is really incredible. That It's something that we don't really think about a lot. Because games are so good at delivering information, we often don't realize that that's what they're doing. We don't realize that every time we play a game, especially a new game, we don't really realize how much information is being downloaded into us that is information that sometimes can last years and be recalled instantaneously. You know, people can remember how the Pokemon type advantage chart works in their brain since they played when they were 10. And, you know, you can talk about a game and which which spells have different abilities and what are the advantages and disadvantages of each. And, you know, no one sat down. Well, I shouldn't say no one sat down because some people did. When you played the game, you were just playing the game and having fun. You weren't sitting down with a textbook and, you know, trying to absorb all that information. It was just delivered in such a way that it gave you a, a kind of a motivation for wanting to learn it. It delivered it in the proper amount. It gave you context for it. And only when you step back and look at it and try to piece together all the things that you learned, only then will you realize, oh, wait, I, <laughs> I was absorbing so much information. It's almost like a college course worth of information for this one game. This is why we have our students take a class all on ethics of game design, because the power that you have as game designers to embed information can be used in a lot of different ways. And you have to be aware of what it is you're actually doing. I've seen this phenomenon, and I feel in some ways we've lost a lot of opportunities that we could have. Hmm. If we built more of these in-game mechanisms and sets of concepts around real-world concepts so that you learn these Pokemon types and what beats what, well, if that were based on something in the real world, well, then that's really powerful. 
because if people have been playing this game and they have and the key with that is you do need to have this moment of reflection this aha uh, because uh, you know as Dewey says if you just do something but you don't reflect on it you don't actually learn so you do this and then you need to have this reflection to say oh by the way that that stuff you've been using in this game for 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 this much time hey it actually applies right here and you can learn these things and this is something about how chemistry works or something about how quantum physics works and, and that's at the heart of what I try to encourage my students, if even if they're going to go into recreational games, to look for opportunities to bring in real-world lessons. Uh, I think a, a series of games that does this well sometimes is the Assassin's Creed series. Hmm. Um, much better in their early versions where they had these uh, historical settings and they've returned back to it with a new version of their newest Assassin's Creed that just lets you explore the history and the space in which you're in. But by taking a time period, by looking at some of the conflicts during that time period, by setting things in a historical location, and while you're playing the game, you're learning the layout of a city, you're learning about who was working against whom. I, I really like what they've done with that series. Uh, Civilization, you've got a similar thing that goes on where people get to understand different forms of governments and things like that. So anytime, even when you're making a recreational game, if you can step back and say, hey, this new system we're creating, can we build something from the real world into it so that when people have played it, they'll have learned something? I always encourage people to think about that. This is why I'm excited about the future of escape rooms and one of the long tales of what escape rooms can become. As we start to get tired of escape rooms about zombies and sneaking into offices and that sort of thing, um, what, what I'm seeing in, in more mature escape room industries like in Europe, most of the escape room facilities that are over there have at least one of their rooms that has a historically set room based upon the place where the escape room is. And it's that opportunity to help people. It's, just, it's an interesting combination. Uh, escape rooms are doing a few things really neat in gaming that we haven't seen. One of the things they're doing is, as they're growing into pop culture, we're seeing something in pop culture that's about thinking. Hmm. <laughs> that's about puzzle solving. That's about cooperating and not competing. It's this fantastic positive experience where a group of people come together and solve puzzles together and you're seeing it on TV, you're seeing it portrayed in sitcoms. It's like this is this is awesome. You know, we haven't been so cool as geeky puzzlers in a long time. Yeah. We're seeing a sports energy drink. It'll put hundreds of thousands of dollars into the Red Bull Escape Room World Championships. Um and putting me in their men's fashion magazine. I mean, how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's this opportunity where puzzling and working together is being held up as this fantastic activity, and, and I love that. And then we're seeing this interesting space now starting to develop, which combines a history museum and historical or history or historical fiction, at least, with these games. So people, as they're playing these recreational games, are learning about the history, the place where they are. Now, there's a lot of controversy around that about where's the do you where do you draw the line between history and fiction? How do you inform the players when it's over what was true and what was made up for the game? These are things we still have to explore and understand. We've been there before. We have these living history museums that some of them take a lot of liberties with what history is, but. It's an interesting space for these escape rooms to be moving into that we don't see as much in other forms of gaming. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up escape rooms. Escape rooms have probably been the thing that just drove me crazy about games in 2018. I've 
absolutely fallen in love with going to in-person escape rooms. I bought almost every escape room in a box that is on the market. (laughs) And now I don't have enough time to play all of them. (laughs) I've absolutely just completely fallen in love with it. And yeah, like you said, uh, it's amazing that it's, you know, a brainy activity that has gotten some pop culture attention. Every time I go into an escape room and I look at the group that's coming out or the group that I get mixed in with, it's always a diverse group of people. It appeals to a pretty broad set of people that each find their own thing about it that they really love. That's one thing that I really like about escape rooms and, you know, try to sell people on escape rooms. Like it's not just sitting in front of a puzzle and beating your head against it. It involves everything. It involves coordination, communication, language. I try not to talk about math all that much because not everybody's into math. But, you know, there's so many different challenges that are part of it. And each group brings their own mix into it. And I think that it's it's really awesome that it's taken off, like you said. I think it's a great a great expansion for gaming as a whole. I also love that one of my studies revealed the high percentage of females that are involved in designing escape rooms. Hmm. Comparing that to other forms of gaming, uh, it's it's nice to have a space where there's almost as many females doing design and development escape rooms as there are males. And we, we don't see that in, a, in other types of games. And so I hope that doesn't get screwed up along the way. <laughs> hmm. That's really interesting. I wonder why that is exactly. I guess I guess maybe since it's a new a new kind of like in-person experience that it doesn't have the same kind of demographic pipeline that goes through the education, you know, for video games, for example. It's kind of more open-ended. I also think there's there's more feeders into being on the design side of escape rooms. So it's got a heavy theater industry feeding coming hmm. into it. And so there's you also need a, a diverse team. Now, one thing that's different about the United States as compared to anywhere else in the world, in the United States, there's this heavy move from the haunt industry into the escape room world. Uh, We don't see that anywhere else. And that's because the United States has this heavy haunt industry. And so I fear in the U.S. we are going to see a bit of a shift into the same gender breakdown as the haunt industry has if that continues to be the move in. As compared to in other places where it can be coming in from theater, coming in from what's going on in interactive theater. I also know part of it is there's a lot of husband-wife teams that run escape rooms because you need a diverse skill set to make a room, just like you need a diverse skill set to uh, play a room, that there's a wide variety of things you need to do to create that room. And so you do need people with different backgrounds and, and different skill sets. Hmm. Yeah, that's so true. Talking about your research on escape rooms, I hadn't really heard of anybody taking really taking the approach of, of studying it. What kind of information were you looking for and what kind of again this is very broad what are some of the insights that you learned from your your research on escape rooms well when i did my first escape room back in 2014 i was in singapore and i saw them and i knew i had a lot to bring to the world because i've been doing live action role playing since the 1980s and when i saw escape rooms i thought hey they finally commercialized live action role play hmm and as a professor, you know, I know there's there's four ways in the academy to get known on doing something. Uh, you can do it first, you can do it last, you can do it best, 
or you can do it worst. <laughs> so I, I got at least one of those. So, so and maybe a couple by its time it's all done. But I knew there was no good study out there on uh, sort of a survey of it. Now, I used this model before. Back in 2007, when I first saw libraries using gaming, I did a similar study where I reached out to a, the, I used a census of libraries in North America to find out what percentage of libraries were using games. And that data was very useful in raising awareness about this. And so I took a similar approach with escape rooms. In 2014, I hunted down every escape room that I could find via the internet um, and contacted them. And now there was many that I missed because I don't speak uh, Japanese, I don't speak Mandarin, you know, <laughs> and and so because it started out and grew in Asia first, so it's a highly biased survey towards the English language, but still I was able to get some pile of data about what went on in the rooms, about the kind of puzzles that were used in the rooms, about the kind of players. That's where I learned about the the high number of females that were involved in the industry. It was really just this idea of getting a baseline. The other thing I was able to do, so one thing I ran into quite quickly is the escape room industry. Uh, in general, because of the nature of their games, they're very secretive. They don't want to talk to each other. <laughs> they, yeah. they don't want to share anything. And because it's that's all they have are, are their secrets. So I was able to come in as an outsider who did not have an escape room. I didn't have a competitive dog in the fight. So I was able to get people to tell me about their rooms and then anonymize that data and release it. And what was interesting is I got quite a few responses from people who said, you know, I would not answer this survey, but I know you from Board Games with Scott. I watched your videos. <laughs> And so I know you're on the up and up. I trust you um, because there's a lot of distrust in this sort of thing. He just mentioned board games with Scott. What is that? That is the first board game video series on YouTube. And Scott Nicholson created it. That's just one of the many ways that Scott has been pioneering with games. And we don't even have time to talk about it. So I was able to put together this study and put out some some base, basic data on, on what we have worldwide, the sort of rooms we have and things like that. And then I moved into doing more design-focused research. And so that's uh, my next few articles were about the big model that I'm known for is a model that I call Ask Why, which really, again, is grown in my thinking about the world around the concepts of relevance and information science. Um, and ask why is the idea that when you create an escape room or a puzzle box for a classroom or anything like that, you want to ask why about every element you're putting into that room. Why is it in this space? So it, with a puzzle, why is there a puzzle here? What is going on in your narrative such that a puzzle makes sense? Because many escape rooms are just puzzles in a room. They don't answer any ask why. And when you don't have that, then you throw the player into cognitive dissonance. If a player is trying to get into the room and they're trying to understand what's going on and who they're supposed to be, and then, oh, there's a Sudoku on the wall that we read with a black light. Okay, why is this here? And so that's my one of my current soapboxes I get on, is to help escape room designers ask about every one of their challenges. Why is it here? What is the purpose of it in your world? How do we use environmental storytelling concepts to convey the world of what's going on? People talk about immersion in escape rooms. Oh, it's this great immersive room. And when you hear that, many times it's someone that has spent a lot of money to build up a set 
to then put puzzles that don't make any sense in that world. <laughs> uh, we do see that in a lot of the games coming from the haunt industry. A lot of focus on a really immersive set, but then the puzzles are just laid on top of them, and the puzzles don't really immerse you in what's going on. Uh, there's a term in gaming, uh, ludonarrative dissonance, which is about this idea that you want the actions the player takes in the game to fall in line with the character they're supposed to be playing in the game. <laughs> and if you don't have that, then it causes problems for the player. And so with escape room design, I, that's, just, that's been something I've, I've written several models and tools to help people think about that. Uh, my next move is to – I'm writing a book now on escape room design. I've been teaching a, a college-level class on it and working with our students, and now I'm trying to create a book. The book is going to be focused on making escape rooms with an educational goal. So my target audience is going to be teachers and people in museums and things like that. But those people that are making uh, recreational rooms will also be able to benefit from it because uh, you, may, you could teach something along the way. Uh, so that's the, the audience for my book. I don't see that as a – there's not a good book out there for that audience at this point because I do see for classrooms the escape room and puzzle box concept as being a, a useful one for teachers to bring into play. But just like – I encourage recreational escape rooms to ask why. I also encourage educators to ask why about their games. Don't just make it a worksheet with a lock that tells you if you solve the worksheet correctly. Uh, just adding a lock to a worksheet is not making a good puzzle box. So how do you actually create a narrative that's meaningful and teaches something? How do you create puzzles and challenges that help the players to become more immersed in the narrative and make it such that as they solve that puzzle, that puzzle, they are learning new skills or enforcing skills that they have. And then how do you incorporate reflection to help them realize what it is they've learned and how it can make a difference in the world? The moment that really hit me in this first part was when I was talking about how effective games can be for education. And from that, Scott points out that that very fact gives game designers an ethical responsibility with their games to use that power for good. It was an encapsulation of what I've been feeling about gaming as a hobby and as an industry. We've wanted society at large to take us seriously, but at the same time, we could be making games more responsibly with a forward-thinking approach. That helped to remind me that making educational games isn't just a way to make the medicine of school more palatable, but a way to really improve the world, to solve real problems and challenges that people face. I appreciate the work of Scott and all of my other guests in this series who are pushing the boundaries to find the ways to do just that. To find out more about Scott's work, you can find him on Twitter. That's at S. Nicholson. And you can look up the work of the Brantford Games Network Lab, also known as the BGN or the Begin Lab. On Facebook, you can search Professor Scott Nicholson to find him there. And you can always check out his website, scottnicholson.com. All the links are in the show notes. That's it for this week's Intelligence Boost. Tune in next week as we continue with part two of my discussion with Scott Nicholson. You're not going to want to miss the second half. We'll start off by going into some examples of educational escape rooms that he has worked on. I think it will really flesh out these ideas and principles that he was talking about at the end there. After that, we'll get into some more of his bedrock principles for teaching with games and the biggest pitfall with gamifying education. 
Subscribe now on your favorite podcast listening app so you don't miss it. And remember, that includes things like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. There are so many out there to choose from. To join the community Discord, download the app on your favorite mobile device, or you can get the application on your computer or just run it in your browser. The quickest way to get to it is discord.gg slash plus seven. That's discord.gg slash plus numeral seven. And you can find the show on Twitter at seven underscore intelligence. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in seven. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.